As you're listening to the following music selections, adjust the volume, bass, and treble controls to suit your tastes. On today's episode of Android's Dungeon, caves versus caves. Which one will triumph? Which one will fall? And maybe a discussion about a flick or two. Stay tuned. Androids Dungeon on CFRU. <laughs> Starting off the show to a great, great beginning. Um, 93.3 FM broadcasting out of the University of Guelph, Ontario, Canada, Milky Way Galaxy. Uh, you can listen to us live on CFRU.ca, and you can even find archives of the show, older ones, if for some masochistic reason you want to revisit this <laughs> occasional train wreck, occasional triumph that is Androids Dungeon, a show about games, Movies, music, pop culture, you know, kind of like whatever happens, man. I'm joined today by Kayla Campbell. Hello, everyone. And I am Jack. Kayla, what have you been playing recently? Well, uh, our house just got an exciting new game called Cave vs. Cave. So it's a very dry game all about uh, two empty rocks that are just trying to out-empty rock the other person, correct? False. You're very, very, very wrong. Jeez. I know. I knew you'd screw it up. Unbelievable. Uh, it's actually about a girl dwarf and a boy dwarf. <laughs> and uh, that's actually what's on the cover of the box. And they are trying to make the best caves. Well, how do you make a best cave? A cave is just a cave. It's just a hole in a rock. Well, not when you're a dwarf. Well, what do dwarves do that's different? Uh, dwarves uh, excavate mm-hmm. cave areas. Okay. And then build rooms that they furnish. So you're saying to me that there are dwarves in these caves. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's more dwarf versus dwarf, not cave versus cave. Well, yeah, I guess it's like one dwarf versus the other dwarf. But in reality, they are trying to make their caves better than the other one. Oh, so that's I see. why it's cave versus cave. The no. One cave will triumph over the other cave because it's better. Interesting. Um, Are there any Nick Caves involved in this? (laughs) There are no Nick Caves explicitly involved, but uh, Nick Cave can be listened to while you're playing this game. (laughs) I don't don't know what album is appropriate for Cave vs. Cave. uh. Um, I think Weeping Song is just always appropriate for all things. (laughs) This is a caving song. (laughs) Maybe Nick would uh, make a song like a cave version of the weeping song just for us <laughs> i'm sure i'm sure between nick cave writing us a special song and uve rosenberg coming on the show I, it's not you we, know dreamland or anything i think uve is a far more likely scenario than uh, uh australian superstar nick cave <laughs> showing up on android sunshine but you, you never know, know you know you never know i mean vishkana who uh uh, station manager here, he managed to get an interview with Nick Cave, but even though I think it was accidental, he was sitting down with Warren Ellis, and uh, 
Nick Cave just happened to stroll in and uh, he locked into it, which I'm extremely envious of. So Maybe Nick will just wander into the University of Guelph. <laughs> Gets lost and then <laughs> wanders in the radio station, knocks on the door while we're pre-recording. <laughs> hey, Nick, what's up? Hi. <laughs> That's, I, I don't know. How to, Australian accents. Con- no, I'm still not doing it. No. It's very nasally. No, you're not my, doing it. My New Zealand friend used to be able to do an Australian accent. And if you ever want to hear the best accents out of people, um, Canadians do uh, adequate U.S. accents. I find they're a little too broad because we're too smug. And Yanks do the worst Canadian accents because they're a? just way too smug. A, a boot. Where you been in your igloo, eh? Yeah, just these really, really lame sort of... Uh, uh, broad, kind of like, is this your first joke? You've ever, you don't think anyone's ever made that. But New Zealanders versus Australians, classic rivalry. If you ever want to hear uh, somebody really, hit, I think they really hate each other in a in a very guttural sense. But if you ever hear a New Zealander making fun of an Aussie and an Aussie making fun of a New Zealander or a Kiwi, it's really something special. And I really recommend you you foster disagreements and fights between your. Uh, oceanic friends because the eel, you'll get some laughs. But anyway, we've fallen way, way off the path on Cave versus Cave. It was your fault. Uh, how many people can play? Two. It's another two-player exclusive Rosenberg game. And then before we go on, I have to hand it to this man, Uwe Rosenberg, who we've gone on about on this show so many times, but there's a good reason for it, is that the man, he's just so good at what he's doing. And some people can really... They kind of get their um, their panties in a twist about him because it's like, oh, he's just remaking Agricola. He's just remaking Agricola. No. the man, He has evolved throughout it, and he also spins off ideas in these two-player-specific variants of games. So you see the mechanics showing up in other things, but then he makes them into very accessible, great little two-player exclusive games, which there aren't enough of, in my opinion. But sorry, go on, Kale. No, that's a great point. I love the two-player versions of his games, there's um, All Creatures Great and Small for Agricola. There hmm. is... Um, Patchwork. Patrick, sure. There's the Lahav two-player. Uh, inland Port. Inland Port, that's what it is. Now, KB's... Sorry, sorry, please. No, no, you can go ahead. I was going to say, there's even the bigger one, too, which we have not played, and that's the one weak... It's the one glaring uh, spot, even though we haven't played Mercator either, but... It's Fields of Arl, yes. which is an explicitly two-player game, but it's a big one. As massive. opposed to, it's a massive game. We tried to play it once at uh, Board Game Cafe in downtown Guelph, but um, the table was literally too small for it. Mm-hmm. We had two tables pushed together, and it wasn't enough to contain yeah. Fields of Arl. So, so you need a... We used to play games on the floor like Caverna because there's just so much room, but... We need to buy that game and then play it. Yeah. And put the leaf on the table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, please. Uh, okay, so what I was going to say is that I love that he makes these two-player versions of these really great big games because it can... Sometimes the big games, like, as much as I love them, as much as I love Caverna, as much as I love um, the other ones, it can often be really daunting to set that up if you just want to play... If you just want to play that... Um, well, even with, and uh, this is going to come in a little bit, but we have the insert, the uh, broken token insert yep. for Caverna, and it's and it cuts down on setup and tear down so much, but it's still, it, getting it onto the table is still a kind of a beast, and it's, it is something where you think about, and unfortunately, it, it happens too often is where you want to play something, but do I feel like kind of setting it all up and then tearing it down? Like, for me, I'd, I'd have a million plays of Feast for Odin if it was just up and down 
I'm waiting for his two-player piece for Odin. It's give it time. It'll happen. Oh, I hope so. Maybe he listens to this and he'll do it. Oh, my God. Can you imagine two-player? Anyway, I'm dreaming. So, <laughs> just, so please, sorry, Kayla. I've interrupted you again. Uh, no, that's fine. We keep getting off track, but that's okay. Uh, so cave versus cave, you have... It's very similar to Caverna. It's a worker placement, but with no workers. Which, which is, is what they say in the box. Okay. Thanks, Jack. I, everyone's just going to think I came up with that on my own, but that's fine. <laughs> I mean, it's not on the box. What are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> uh, okay. So you have these two uh, two cave boards, and each turn you get to take a certain amount of actions, and the actions relate to um, these the available actions, which get revealed each round of the game on like a center board and then you take that action and you get to carry it out um, there might be a cost involved or you might get something from it or you might be able to do something else uh, i don't know how else to explain that well it's basically i think a, a good way to sort of explain it too and you've done a great job but another way to visualize it is that um since there's no workers per se what you end up with are it's basically how many tiles you can draw. So imagine instead of putting a meeple down, and I'll just go off track here yet again briefly, and that there's some online discussion that people don't care for the just group and swiping of tiles. They find it adds unnecessary time to this game. So some people are just buying some meeples and keeping them in the box. So you just drop them on top of the tile, and then that way you just scoop up your meeples when you're done as opposed to putting the tiles back on there. Oh, yes, all that wasted time. Yeah, who knows? Like, that's it's, so much effort. Seriously, someone that's someone's complaint about the game is that I had to pull a tile I, beside me. I wouldn't me. describe it a complaint necessarily, but more of just their own personal modification, something to sort of speed it up. To each their own. We haven't played I enough mean, times to consider that yet. But I love meeples, obviously. Yeah. But that just seems silly. I had no problem with taking the tile. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it really isn't. It's just tile taken put tiles back at end of round it, it really isn't strenuous by any stretch of the imagination but it, i think right. maybe it's a little quicker perhaps if you really think about just like you put the people down that's it take the people back as opposed to kind of trying to lay out the tiles like because you do the problem is that and we've kind of jumped ahead again but the tiles are numbered so certain ones are supposed to be uh ter- um second round third round and then there's a fourth round tile so i did find myself kind of looking at the backs of them and putting them there but it doesn't really matter mm it's like not once critical. You flip it, it once doesn't it's matter. Flipped, it's still yeah, going yeah. back there. It doesn't yeah. really matter where it is. Yeah, I don't think so. So it really ultimately doesn't matter, but it is a preference thing at the end of the day, like any sort of modification to a game like this. Sorry, please go on, Kale. Okay, so these are your actions. Um, the other part about your cave board is that you all of your cave uh, starts covered up. So mm-hmm. you, ex- you have to excavate the rooms or the space on the board. <coughs> Sorry. You have to excavate the space on the board, which is an action. And then when you excavate excavate it, um, you flip it over and it's a room. Mm-hmm. And you put all the rooms go into a common area in the center of the table. And one of your actions can be to buy one of those rooms. Um, once that happens and you have the room on your board, it's then yours. So one, there's points associated with it, which is what you count at the end of the game. And then two, there are action tiles that let you basically tap that room mm-hmm. and use its ability. So the abilities might be like take one food or turn a food into something else um, or other various really cool things like make gold. Mm-hmm. Well, that, yeah, that's exactly it. And it's you're, you're, <clears throat> you're balancing making room for these eventual furnishings but there's also something in the game that adds a little twist to it in that it's not just enough to buy the room. So what, you have an empty space. Sorry, buddy. 
some of these rooms need walls. And if you look at them, so when you take the mine action, so basically you hollow out more space in your cave, you flip over the tile that you mined, and you put it in the center. So your opponent or you can grab it, depending on the turn order. If you look at the tile, it's got a bunch of things associated with it. One is a general cost to build it. Some of them take a lot of resources. Some of them take something. Some of them don't take anything. But there's also a little symbol in uh, the corner of it that indicates whether you need to have walls on the top part or the bottom part or on the sides. Some of them are optional, so you don't, you can or you cannot have them, and it doesn't punish you. But when you place them, this is where sort of the sort of spatial a game that's sort of uh, patchwork, and I, I don't want to draw too broad a comparison, but patchwork does sort of come into play because you can move your tile around a little bit. It's still square, but you can make it fit. It's not locked in because some of these games, like let's say, <clears throat> excuse me, Karuba, for example, you always have to have it with the number in the top left corner. In this, it doesn't matter. You can spin it around and fit it where you want it as long as it fits uh, the regulation of the walls. And you may be saying, well, Jack, what happens if I've mined my way around here and uh, there's no wall space or I've screwed up? You can build a wall, but it is a very coveted action, or at least that's what I found when we were playing, is that because uh, you want to lay down these rooms as quickly as possible to get the most out of them, but you're hampered by the fact that the only walls that are permanent on the board are the ones around the side. So just because you haven't drilled or cut through the hole in the cave it doesn't count as a wall either. So there's a lot of stuff to keep in mind, and it's so tight. But again, Kayla, please go on. <laughs> no, that's fine. I think you've covered the main things. I definitely forgot about the walls. We've mm -hmm. only played once. Mm -hmm. um, but so you take your actions, you build your rooms, you use your rooms, you use the actions. Um, something that's interesting about this game is that you never have to really worry about feeding anyone, yes. which is nice. Food can be used as a um, like a resource to buy things but you never have to really feed anything which is sometimes a big hassle in Caverna you always need food same with Feast for Odin um, and then at the end of the game you the winner is decided by the point value of the rooms and gold mm -hmm. nothing else matters none of the other resources you could have food coming at the Yahoo but it doesn't matter Mm -hmm. And it's, it represents, again, this... So the way resources are tracked in the game, too, is elegant because you just have this shelf basically built into the board itself. And every time you get more resource, you move one of your tokens up a space. Mm -hmm. And when you use it, you drop them down. And it's... Um, I think it's a novel use of... With the, with these two-player games, and I want to point out, too, that Caver's Cave is very inexpensive. I think it was $24. I uh, think so. And it is just packed, packed with stuff. Mm -hmm. There's enough game in there to last you a lot, a lot of plays mm -hmm. for maybe you start cracking or you start seeing the same thing happening over and over again. Um, but part of making a successful two-player game is that this portability. You don't want to be lugging around something super heavy. You don't want to take Feast for Odin with you everywhere, even though you do. <laughs> um, so you're just using these tokens properly, and it's a very, very elegant use of the sort of the abstract. And I think bringing up abstract, do you think, it, and this is my perspective based on what people have been saying and sort of playing it myself, do you think Cave versus Cave is basically an abstract game, or do you think it's Caverna distilled into basically the core of whatever Caverna is trying to do? Uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, we could probably write essays on these types of things. <laughs> School uh, is starting again. I know. Not for me. I don't know. It's. I wouldn't necessarily say that it's abstract. I think it is, at its core, a distilled version of Caverna. I think that you do the same types of things. You. It's... 
you know, it's taken out a lot of the things in Caverna that you would normally do, like mining for rubies. Um, but at its core, you're taking an action, which you do in Caverna. You are trying to furnish rooms in on your cave board, which you do in Caverna. So I think it's it's taken a chunk of what Caverna does and put it in a compact two cave versus cave two-person format. It's obviously dropped a lot of the Caverna no aspects. There's no animals, which is unfortunate because they're adorable. <laughs> they are super uh, cute. And, you know, there's no... <clears throat> There's no increasing the number of workers you have through well, an I, action. You do get more workers as you go through. Yeah, and I want to point that out too because going back to Rosenberg sort of refining things in his games, I think something that he's he's sort of worked on is that Agricola, there's this rush to have family members as quick as possible. And then Caverna maintains this. You want to have family members as quick as possible because it turns into more actions. As you go out through the games, he sort of gets away from this stuff until you eventually get to Feast for Odin, which I think does it the best in that... You don't, you're not required to put a worker down on a space to get more workers. Mm-hmm. It's a na- it organically delivers more. So every round, you get to take one more Viking, one more Viking. And eventually, you've, you've, everyone's got the same page with the amount of workers. But it, not, it, it represents a, you could argue it, it's a subtraction of strategy, but it lets you basically, it's, you're losing the, the action to make more workers or the strategic element of that but gaining way more options naturally as opposed to punishing players all cramming for one spot and only one person getting it and then everyone else to work around it. The rest of the game is built around everyone having more. And you could argue this is less elegant, but I think it just it feels more fun rather than just fighting over one spot like what happens in Caverna. I don't know Agricola nearly as well. so. No, I absolutely agree. I think just having your workers, that's something that Feast for Odin does really well. And I think having the action slash workers in Cave versus Cave is also really good. Mm-hmm. Because when you are trying to have a baby, which is adorable when they say that, write that, which is what they say in the rules, uh, it is a lot of pressure to get to that spot. It's and a lot of work having a kid. <laughs> So avert. Um, yeah, I think that taking that away and making it kind of an even even playing field when it comes to workers and the number of actions you get mm-hmm. is a very uh, graceful. Graceful. Well, I like that. I like mm-hmm. the way it works. And and we may have glossed over it, but the way it works is um, for the amount of workers per round, you're allowed to take that many tiles. So at the beginning, I think you're only allowed two. two. And then you get to the next round, you're allowed three. Mm-hmm. And then the final round, you're allowed... Uh, four. Yeah. Um, and there is, when they say the fourth round, it is the last round, but there's only one tile that activates in that. And that one is kind of interesting because you can only use the tile if you've got more gold than your opponent. If there's a tie, you can't take it. And if at any point you get more gold than your opponent, then they lose that privilege and you can take it. Now, if it's used, it's used. That's that. But it is a neat little thing that just kind of shows up in there that's uh, yet again something that I don't think I've seen in any Rosenberg games this like explicit sort of you're locked out of this unless you're like the, the richest person in the game. But it reminded me a lot of um, kind of a mix of Glass Road as well. Um, hmm. And I, I think we I don't know if we've talked about Glass Road on the show at all, but it's another one of these Rosenberg games that I think doesn't get enough appreciation. And partially because I think it's very expensive for what the game actually is comparing like the, the dense components of Cave versus Cave to um, glass road and you just I don't, I don't think there's as much value there it's it's usually running you like 59 69 dollars for a game that's 
it's a great game. Don't get me wrong. But, but it's I, mostly cards, isn't it? It's mostly cards. There is a lot of board. Like, there are a lot of tiles. Right. But comparatively, like, although Feast for Odin is very expensive now, I think it's like running 115, 120 bucks if you were to pick that up, which is not really? what I paid for it. But, uh, but it's mean, worth it. There's tons of stuff in Feast for Odin. So you can see where all that, that cash is going. Absolutely. The same with Caverna. You can see where all that money is going. The components are beautiful. They don't just give you little cubes to represent food. They give you these corn stalks and the corn hey yeah, hey, hey whatever <laughs> and pumpkins and oh the pumpkins are adorable they're really cute <laughs> and all the animals are like perfect yeah animals so the components are really great yeah and, and i do love good components in a game yeah absolutely and it, it helps to sell the game to other people too like um when you put down a game and you're trying to introduce to other people and it's a bunch of cubes and discs, it, it kind of takes a little bit out of it, even if it's kind of this imagination. Just use your imagination to make these cubes into pigs and other stuff. It's definitely hard to understand it too. You're trying to be, you're trying to say, oh, that's a, oh, that's a pig. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's a white cube. Why is that a pig? Yeah, That's something that I struggle with in... Uh, Lords of Waterdeep is that all of the mm -hmm. people that you get without explaining what Lords of Waterdeep is, everything is a cube. So someone's like, I want a wizard, I want a rogue, I want a whatever. I'm like, I'll take a white and a yeah. purple and an orange. <laughs> Thank you. And like Waterdeep is um, a worker placement game, mm -hmm. but it's basically, it's it, it's a cube economy game where you, you put guys down to get cubes of this color and you turn these cubes of this color into... Um, a building or you you turn them into a quest to get points and I think it's a very dry dry game if you really distill it down but it's it's got this D&D &D theme that I think sort of compels it or pushes it beyond but at the end of the day it really is just <laughs> give me those cubes <laughs> which is fine absolutely fine but cave versus cave Kayla what do you give it how many how many um, bats hanging in the cave <laughs> bats really you chose bats Kayla, it loves bats, by the way. I don't like bats. <laughs> Who doesn't like bats? It's like a little flying mouse. So on the day that we bought Cave versus Cave, we also went to the ROM, the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto. And Jack made me go through the cave, the bat cave. <laughs> there aren't any real bats in I there, I know, but the it's so gross. It's it's very cool. I and don't like it. I didn't want to get Cave versus Cave until I went through the bat cave. And I was like, oh, I got to get Cave versus Cave. That's not true. Really? I went to Toronto no, to pick I, up. Come on. <laughs> In fact, I'd already bought it at that point. So well, we went to Toronto to see the blue whale exhibit. True, true. Um, anyway. So okay, so how, how many, many rubies do I give it in a cave? Okay, do whatever you like. <laughs> I give it ten rubies. Ten out, of 10. ten out of ten? Yeah. Holy smokes. I don't know. It's really good. I so I love Caverna. Yeah. I think Caverna was going back a while, but it was probably one of the first heavy games that we played a lot of yeah. together and so it just has like a little special spot absolutely so is, a little two-player one is is great in my books yeah and i think um if we're fortunate enough because i know um all creatures great and small got an expansion um but that was a while ago i i can't think of any other t he definitely didn't do an expansion for lahav uh inland Mm -hmm. um, nothing for patchwork, even though I think it would throw everything off with an expansion for patchwork. I'm pretty happy with patchwork as it is. Patchwork as is works, unless yeah. you really thought out, thought outside mm -hmm. the quilt and came up with something that worked. But I could thought see outside the quilt. Did you like that, Kayla? Yeah, I did. Um, for cave versus cave, I think there's options. I think you could easily add a little board to the side for maybe the actual 
maybe animal rearing stuff or farming. Oh, I was going to say ruby mining. Or ruby mining. Like there's a lot of options. So yeah. I think there's there's room for applying maybe elements from Caverna into the cave versus cave world and in an elegant way that doesn't break what makes cave versus cave so nice, which is that it's fast. It is is a quick, um, very uh, tight little game where if you make a mistake and your opponent knows what they're doing, you're not coming back because it's about finding an engine. You're about, it's about looking on the board and seeing that, um, okay, I have access to a lot of uh, flax or whatever they call in this game. And that means I can build this building here, which turns them into clothing, which I can sell for gold, and I can use this gold to buy this. It's about building pathways. And it killed me when we played where Kayla sniped one of my paths and uh, something that I was gearing up toward, and it just disappeared before my eyes. And Was that the gold mine? Uh, it was Gold something? It was something. I, I don't remember what it was called, but it, it broke my heart a little bit. It broke your heart so much that you went and lost the game? <laughs> <laughs> this is uh it's getting it's getting deep here folks but it's i really endorse it i will give k versus k based on my planks i'm gonna give it um 14 uh 14 rocks that are not gold fool's gold out of 17 because it is really interesting little game 14 out of 17 might be the strangest numbers to choose like what what made you choose? like most people go 10 100 i'm not most people and on that note we're going to take a quick musical break we'll be back in a moment Sort of harmonize together You hold my hand As you try 
back to CFRU 93.3 FM broadcasting on Guelph, Ontario. What you just heard was a song from the Arkells, who are a Canadian band from Hamilton, Ontario. Um, it was called Pulling Punches. It was all about a boxer no. who's down on his luck. No. It was called Kiss Cam. Kiss Cam. It's all about a boxer who's <laughs> down on his luck, who's performing in front of a, a big audience. And uh, the Kiss Cam comes on, he looks up, and he sees that his girlfriend is sitting with his arch enemy on the kiss cam. <laughs> and it fills him with the rage necessary to defeat his opponent and uh, wins the title. And that man's name was Floyd Mayweather. <laughs> or it's about the end of summer and uh, summer love. I like ending. mine better. Yes, well, mine was also the right song. When I was in Kingston, I feel like the, uh, the Arkells... I, I feel like they were around in Kingston a fair bit. I'm not totally sure if they were um, just this band that happened to be fairly, especially big at the time, especially in the Canadian, I don't know if you want to call them the alt-rock scene or indie rock scene, but there were a couple times where I, th I don't know if they ever came to the grad club, but definitely in Kingston. Have you ever seen them? Uh, I have. I have seen them, sorry. Uh, their song Pull and Punches actually makes reference to Kingston, so maybe that's what you were thinking about. I don't know, but maybe. I have seen them. I saw them twice in Guelph. I saw them once at Hillside a few years ago, and then I saw them another year open up for The Hip. Ooh, that would have been a fun one. Yeah, it was really fun. It was at the Sleeman Center. It was a snowstorm. It was pretty great. The were they there when we were at Hillside? Was the, no, no, no. All right, big deal. Uh, <laughs> doesn't matter. Jack wasn't there, so it doesn't count. I'm, yeah, it didn't exist as far as I'm concerned, which gets into philosophical arguments, I suppose. But we're moving on. Um, Arkell's Kiss Cam, uh, Canadian band. Listen to them. They're they're pretty good. Pretty pretty good. So Kayla and I uh, just saw a film last night uh, that I think we should talk about a little bit because. We've, uh, we like to see movies fairly often, but in the summer we've just been so busy and unfortunately it's been, I have to say, a fairly cruddy movie season, to be, uh, to be honest. There hasn't been a lot of stuff and I think, uh, to be honest, I think Hollywood's actually feeling the pinch that they've been putting out so much, so many sequels and uninteresting sort of um, 
reimaginings of derivative stuff that the audience is starting to get a little fatigued. And if it wasn't for the superhero movies that just will, I guess, make enough money here and then they go on to make millions of dollars overseas impressing little Korean kids that love Avengers and all the rest of that. Well, then I'm a little Korean kid because I love the Avengers. Oh, well, there you go. I don't think there was any Avengers stuff this summer, was there? No, we saw Wonder Woman that was... Yeah, and you know what? And Wonder Woman was as close to as we're going to get to a, I think, a reasonable DC movie. They've really kind of... Did you see Batman vs. Superman? No. It was... I don't really care about Batman or Superman. <sighs> Batman's pretty cool. Superman should be cool. But... I mean, they're cool. Yeah. I just don't care about them as much as I care about, like, Captain America. Yeah. Well, and that's, to be fair, most audiences agree with you because uh, I don't know who's in charge of making these DC movies, but they just keep pumping out movies that are even by like middling superhero mm-hmm. standards are not not great and the problem is you find yourself trapped in this sort of loop where it's a movie for children like let's let's call it what it is it's a bunch of people it's comic book characters flying around punching each other with giant monsters ridiculous dialogue ridiculous plots there it's not high art by any stretch of the imagination but you got to find a way to like Christopher Nolan made Batman something else with his trilogy there um, I don't know if I'd ever give any of the Marvel movies any anything close to the same sort of attention I would have given, let's say, The Dark Knight, for example. Yeah, okay, sorry. Just to go back, I do really love Batman, like The Dark Knight, um, those movies, but I don't really have any interest in, interest in Batman and Superman in the same movie. Yeah, fair enough. Um, so going back to what we were saying originally, we just saw a flick last night um, called Wind River. And Kayla, why don't you tell us, uh, give us a a brief synopsis of this movie. Okay. Uh, The movie is set in a very cold and blustery Wyoming. Yeah. (laughs) I didn't figure that out until halfway through the movie. Our friend was asking us, like, do you know what state this set in? Well, they never explicitly stated, unless maybe you're good at license plate identification. Mm. But anyway. Anyways, they figure that out later on. Um, But the movie starts off uh, with... Uh, a hunter who works for a uh, U.S. fishing game uh, coming across the body of a young woman if, in the snow, and she's dead. And so what follows is an investigation into her death uh, with the help of an FBI agent who is not local to the area, just happens to be out in Wyoming on a course from Vegas. I mean, that's not super plausible to me, but... Anyway, so what follows is the investigation into this murder and what's happened. Uh, The interesting thing about it is that the movie is based on true stories. I'm not sure that it's based on a single story, but it's generally based on um, stories related to uh, missing and murdered women. Aboriginal women. Yeah, yeah. Is that the appropriate term? Why not? not Fine phrase. Okay. Uh, so it's definitely set in it's based in reality so it's you could call it and I saw someone describe it as like a Cohen-esque thriller or a noir I don't know if I go as far to call it noir there, there's a mystery to solve but it's not as you're not necessarily piecing it together as the audience because you're it's fairly linear in the sense mm-hmm. it's like the characters go through they discover things there are some clues to follow but for the most part just like they go here, something happens. They go here, something happens. They go here, something happens. It's not like as the viewer, you could figure it out at the beginning of the movie where it's like, oh, I saw clear that guy was acting strange and based on this dialogue here, it's he's the one responsible for it. So there's no spoilers, but 
um, it, it isn't necessarily a mystery. You sit there with a pen and paper and solving yourself. But No, you're not really puzzling it. Yeah, puzzling it. I like that phrase. But uh, So it stars Jeremy Renner and Elizabeth Olsen and uh, a couple other faces you'll recognize as well. I think Hugh Dillon even popped up oddly enough. <laughs> Hugh Dillon po- did pop up. And I love Hugh Dillon because he was on the show that I love called Flashpoint. Flashpoint. It was a Canadian TV show. It's no longer on and it actually broke my heart when it went off the air. Yeah, and he's been doing a lot of stuff for a while and like he's obviously yeah. um, on the headstone or in the headstones and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Maybe uh, we should listen to a Hugh Dillon song next uh You know next what? I, I forgot all about it till we started talking about it. I know. It. But I'm not even a big fan of the headstones, to be honest. But, uh, yeah, maybe whatever. Maybe we could put it on. Uh, maybe someone listening is. Yeah, so you know what? If someone's listening, if, you, if you're listening, uh, that one person, <laughs> I'm, I'm looking right at you. I'm speaking to you. If you're listening and you know who the headstones are and you like the headstones, send us, uh, look us up on Twitter at uh, uh, AD Radio CFRU and send us a tweet about how you want to hear a headstone song. Uh, for all those people who are not listening and want to troll me, do not do that. I mean, for every troll response, I'm not going to play a headstone song. Uh, going back to Wind River, though, Hughes Dillon shows up, a bunch of other people. Everyone, What do you think of the acting in this movie? I thought it was fine. You weren't blown away by any of it, eh? Um, I thought it was perfectly acceptable. I didn't think it was maybe going to win any Golden Globes, but I think it was good. Mm-hmm. I, I don't really have a strong opinion on that. I, I basically have either it was like really crappy or it was like really good. And then my middle ground is... <laughs> It's, just it's, it's hard to explain. It's <laughs> adequate. It it did the job. Okay. It sounds like they, I think that um, they did their job adequately. Yeah, yeah. It was hard for me to um, think of what's his name, Jamie. Is Jeremy Renner. Jeremy Renner. It was hard to, for me to think of him um, outside of his Arrow Man from Arrow Man. What's his name? He has I don't a remember. Name. Hawkeye. <laughs> Yeah, okay, so it was hard for me to think about him. Although they're actually probably similar characters in that they're both like wielding weapons and hunting Sharpshooters, yeah. Interesting. I didn't really think about and that. And you also have Elizabeth Olsen again, who is also in those Avengers films as, uh, I don't know, like Scarlet Witch or something. Oh my God, I feel like everyone in this movie was either in Avengers or Twilight. There's definitely a lot of crossover, accidental or on purpose crossover in Twilight and Avengers. Yeah. Not, not like we're trying to say vampires fighting Captain America crossovers, but just a lot of acting talents, maybe similar <laughs> agents or what the deal is. But I skipped over a part here. It's also, uh, it was written and directed by Taylor Sheridan, who... Uh, who's written a, a couple of things. Um, the first one I'll mention is Hell or High Water, which uh, was a big deal last year. It was really, really good. And did very well for itself, and it deserved it. It was a great movie. It was really good. Uh, very entertaining. You had Captain Kirk and his brother robbing banks, and you also had the dude and uh, another actor who's in this film who I, I'm flubbing the name, uh, chasing them. And it was just a, a very sort of another m- kind of melancholy. I think even slightly more melancholy than uh, Wind River uh, traipsed through the decaying uh, U.S. Uh, small town world where everyone's broke and everyone's scrambling to make things meet or make ends meet in these deserted uh, towns. But um, what do you think about the acting? In Wind River. I thought it was fine. Again, I, I thought See, it was why good. why are you giving me guff when I'm like... I'm not I, giving you guff. Fine. I just think it's interesting because I, I liked the acting. I thought it did its job, but it wasn't... But it's. I think maybe that's the best type of acting where you're just kind of saying... Literally what I just said was they did their job. Functional. They acted well. They told the story. Yeah, yeah. I felt like the story was very compelling. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like sad. Yeah. I cried. Yeah. 
but I cried in a lot of things. But I cried. <laughs> it was sad. I got worried when he uh, uh, something involving mountain lions for a moment there, and I was uh, just on the cusp, but uh, not going into too many details. No spoilers here. Um, but uh, going back to Sheridan again, Hell or High Water, but he also wrote one of the most underappreciated movies of that year, of the year before that, was Sicario, which was uh, uh, directed by uh, Denis Villeneuve. Uh, I may be screwing up the pronunciation of that, but he's gone on to make some outstanding movies, and he's also directing the Blade Runner sequel, which I'm starting to get a little worried about, but i got to trust him. i got to believe in the man. But Sicario was maybe one of my favorite movies I saw that year, and it was just possibly the meanest movie I've seen in a long time too. Just something that really struck me as a very Canadian film in uh, the sense that just very bleak. You end the movie with this message of like, don't bother trying. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was the gist. That At least that's what I walked away from, but maybe it's just uh, my perspective. Yeah, but, that explains a lot. Yeah. Um, but Wind River I, it, it is a much more optimistic film, I think, ultimately, even though there's filled with um, a lot of sadness and death. But Do it, you really think it's optimistic? I felt like the message was that um, this is underreported, under, mm-hmm. under, under cared about. That's not a real word, but it's <laughs> lacking you. attention. Yeah, yeah. Um, I really felt like the message was it needs more attention mm-hmm. without getting political about it. But I didn't think that there was... I didn't think it was like a hopeful message. Well, you got I think you have to split it up into ignoring the th- splitting up the theme and the and maybe if you want to say the the point of the movie. I think the theme of it is ultimately hopeful because uh, no spoilers, but good wins. Triumph there's the justice is served even if it isn't necessarily uh let's say going to the courts and somebody being tried before uh the law to to ultimately uh get vengeance, but Ultimately, the good guys win. Let's just say that. Um, your message or your 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 point about um, the maybe the missing people, uh, specifically in the states, the Aboriginal women who are just there's no, uh, it's not reported. The stats aren't reported there. I think that was the the edge, the political edge of the film there, where it's I don't think it's necessarily something you walk away from. There's there's no hope for the future. There's nothing here. It's like kind of like Sicario's message, which I walked away from versus. Uh, this one where it's like, well, look, there's good men in the world and they're good people trying to do good things. There are good men in the world? Well, good men in the general sense. Jeremy Renner is the good man in this movie and he's, he finishes the movie sitting with the father of the uh, the girl who is murdered and uh, they basically are going to move on. They're going to they have to move on, which is a theme that's kind of been explicitly stated in the film when he's sitting in the car speaking with the brother of the murdered girl as well, saying you can't let this sort of stuff. Um, or maybe I'm mixing up the scene with these when he's on the porch stalking the father as well. But that's kind of the you have to move on. You can't you don't have to forget it, and you can never forget it. But you have to sort of apply it and make yourself a better person using these these tragedies that have befallen you. And I think that's ultimately a hopeful message compared to <laughs> Benicio del Toro threatening to kill you if you ever open your mouth. <laughs> but that's just what I walked away from. I can tell you disagree, though, which is fine with me. But Sure it is. He's actually asked me to leave the studio. <laughs> Ejected from the studio. So, all right, so enough about Wind River. Let's move on to something a little, little easier to eviscerate or uh, kind of step all over. We saw The Dark Tower the previous week. Oh, yeah. And um, Kayla, have you read any of The Dark Tower? Do you know anything about it? So I know that there are books. I know that there are Stephen King books. I have not read them. 
because Jack won't let me read his That's copies. not true. Yeah, it's it's right there. 100% true. He actually said, you can't read these. I stopped her from reading it. That's not true. Yeah, but he just said it. So he must be doing it. <laughs> okay, so I don't know much about them. I do know their books. And from what I can tell, the books are way, way, way better than the film. It would not take much to be better than that movie. It's uh, it's not good, which is so sad because Hydra's Elba is great guy. Matthew McConaughey, also great guy. It's I, I mean, I, by guy, I mean like great actor because I don't know them personally. I'm assuming that they're probably great pals too. Oh, he's a great guy. I like him. I, I think Matthew McConaughey's type of guy would be like buy you a hot dog or something. You know? A hot dog? I'd ask for like a whole store. Well, now you're being greedy. You're not being fair to Matt McConaughey, but... Uh, He's not making for the rest of us. He's got tons of money. Well, all right. Well, maybe he'll buy you a store because he's that great a guy. What store? Why do you want him to buy you a store? Like a hot dog store? Is that <laughs> what you're trying to get at? No, I just meant like if he's going to buy me a hot dog, I'd rather he buy me like all the things. <laughs> <laughs> so you just want to exploit Matthew McConaughey is what you're saying. Uh, I'd like to exploit, exploit his generosity. I'd like to exploit some type of rich, generous person. Yes. <laughs> oh, my God. Anyway, speaking of exploiting talent... Uh, the Dark Tower wastes Idris Elba and Matthew McConaughey in this adap- adaptation of, um, I don't even want to call it uh, Stephen King's story because it's such a mess. Let's of, just call it a take. Yeah, it's a take. And you know what? In the hands of somebody talented, more talented, um, they could have done something with it. They could have made a miss. They could have grabbed some of these mishmash ideas and turned it into something competent. Instead, you have a movie that if it wasn't for the actors... If it wasn't for maybe the quality of the 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 lighting and cinematography, um, would be something that would not be out of place in a made-for-TV movie on Sci-Fi Channel or Space Channel. It just some of the dialogue I was cringing. It was so poorly written, mm-hmm. and there's no excuse for that because the source material is right there, which it always astounds it's me when the amazing dialogue amazing that they couldn't stick to the book and it's hey when they do that and it's i get it some people have said it's unfilmable to shoot uh, or make the dark tower into something i think that's bananas if you can make or uh, game of thrones into the multi like one of the most famous series ever where people i think are maybe if you were to ask the average person lord of the rings or game of thrones people would say like game of thrones as their more favorite of the bunch if you can do that to a series like that whose books aren't even done by the way Dark Tower is finished, kaput. There's a beginning and end. You know where you're going. Then why, what's your excuse for screwing up the Dark Tower? But without going too much into the nitty-gritty of it, they've managed to grab a, a collection of ideas from a couple of the books and craft them into uh, a story that it's tough to follow because it's so nonsensical and it, you just don't care. And the action sequences borderline on ridiculous because they turn the gunslinger from this man with no name, Clint Eastwood-esque character, which was what uh, King envisioned when he was writing the character, into a cool dude. Idris Elba plays him great, but into like a killing machine who's just like, pew, pew, pew. he's like diving all over the place. He's he's bouncing bullets like off of each other, like in Wanted. It, it's goofy. It's borderline superhero stuff. And they turn Matthew McConaughey's character of the man in black, which was like in the King pantheon of villains. Uh, Randolph Plagg, uh, Walter Odin is just like the devil in in all of these King stories. They turn him into like, I don't know, like a, a, a whiny wizard, an evil wizard basically, who's like holding, like crafting orbs of energy or some boring stuff like that and whipping them at people. It was just, who cares? This is dumb. So he doesn't do that in the book? 
No, I'm sorry, Kayla. He's not a, like a wizard in the book? Oh, he is a wizard. Don't get me wrong. Okay. It's just not that kind of wizard. Not like Gandalf sitting there with like a, a staff of lightning or light and doing really flashy, goofy stuff. He's, it's, it just feel, <laughs> it just makes me so sad how they did it. And Matthew Connie's great. For a long time, people were talking about how great it would be for him to play uh, Randall Flagg because he's got this, he's a Southern boy, good old Southern. And that's something that's kind of carried over with the Randall Flagg character in all these books and ideas is that the idea that he's this, just this, this, uh, I don't want to call him a redneck, but he's just a Southern fried sociopath and that he played perfectly. And we watched, did you ever see Killer Joe? I thought we watched it together. I don't recall. Killer Joe nailed it again as like a, this corrupt assassin slash police officer in this uh, play uh, that was adapted to the big screen. Very, very entertaining movie. Another really grim, <laughs> violent flick, but uh, wasted, absolutely wasted Matthew McConaughey in this flick. And he would have been perfect. Idris Elba wasted again. The poor boy that played Jake, he's never going to see another movie, I think, because this one stinks. Maybe I hope his agent's good. I hope he can get him into other stuff because this is not the vehicle. If we get a sequel to me, it'll be a miracle, absolute miracle, because I don't think it made very much money. Maybe someone will just remake it. Well, we, there's the hope that there's the um, HBO series that I think, because if you notice, Ron Howard, I think, was the producer, one of the producers on this, which is embarrassing. I would be embarrassed to have my name attached to this, but I think he's trying to do a, a miniseries on TV, which is the proper format for this movie or for the books, because you just can't cram all that info into and this one's only an hour and a half, too. So it just they're trying to cram this mishmash of ideas into a very lean running time for a lot of these movies. But just a disaster. And, it, and it's an unfortunate disaster, too. But what did, you, what did you walk away from the Dark Tower feeling? I didn't really have any strong feelings about it. I haven't read the book, so I don't feel as emotionally attached to the storyline. I do agree that it wasn't a very good movie. Um, it's interesting that you noted that if it hadn't been for the lighting and as other among amongst other things that it would have been a made for tv movie because i when i was reading the reviews the lighting was actually one of the worst parts for a lot of people is that it was very dark and i thought i was kind of i so i read the review before i went into the movie so i was trying to try to i know right don't do that uh, but I was trying to kind of pick out where they thought there was too much darkness, when there should have been light. And there were definitely some darker scenes, but it seemed to fit. So I'm not really sure about that one. What I, I just want to clarify. I don't mean necessarily how good the lighting was because it wasn't, but I mean that it was the production level of the lighting okay. where you could see the fact that they had the money to put these things sure. in the right place. They just didn't do it. Sure. So I would agree that it wasn't a very good movie. It's unfortunate that... Idris Alba and Matthew McConaughey are attached to it because they make crazy good movies and then to have them have this on the resume I mean everyone has a dud on their resume right like that's not the end of the world it just seems it seems odd for these two people who are so experienced to have gotten in bed with this type of movie well maybe they're excited about it. they read the script and it sounded cool but then the end product it's just one of these things you probably edited out all the good stuff well yeah you just look back on you go, oh man I, I don't even know if editing maybe who knows maybe this is one of these things where like the director's cut will come out in a year and everyone will say oh it's wow this is the movie we we needed this is the one that we should have seen but maybe those damn studio execs they, they no i don't, I don't know it. there's still gonna be those goofy things that you're talking about there's yep. still gonna be the orbs of light coming out of his hand <laughs> So, so dumb. Uh, I don't know. Well, uh, let's going into a broader sense. Then, when what was the first time you saw a movie from adapted by a book that kind of broke your? It's like, how did you screw this up? The book was so good, 
you you had to follow this simple plan, this simple formula, just get somebody remotely competent, but they they ended up just blowing it. What was the first time you remember seeing that? Uh, I don't really remember. I definitely had very strong reactions to the Harry Potter series, good and bad. Mm-hmm. There was definitely one book. It was the... I think it was possibly the prisoner of azkaban or the one no i think it was a prisoner of azkaban they just they put a lot of stuff in the movie that was unnecessary and it seemed out of place i think it was that movie it's the one where the weasley's house sets on fire so someone your one listener can correct me and it's fine <laughs> uh, but it didn't really work for me and it's unfortunate because that's one of my favorite books and i love the series and I don't think it was Azkaban because Azkaban, Azkaban, I I think, is generally considered to be the high point, one of the high points in the series because that's when the Spanish director came in and really gave the series the the aesthetic that it was looking for. Maybe it was the next one. I think it was still him that I, there was a movie I didn't love about it. It made perfectly. I just uh, Um, don't recall that one very well. I mean, he also made it so that in their off time at school, they wore like normal clothes instead of their robes, which... I was not a fan of. Was it in the books though? Because were they always no, wearing robes? They were always wearing their robes. Always A hundred percent of the time, unless you're wearing your. So they're lounging at the in the in Gryffindor house. And they're sitting 100%. there in robes. I mean, not like robes, but like whatever's under the robes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I could be wrong. It's been a long time since I read the books, but I really, really do love. Okay, them but so so you kind of like went in between me here. So it's like it's an example of good adaptations and bad adapt- adaptations because obviously Harry Potter is a great example of a series of books that were translating the movies that not only were very successful critically, but also made a lot of money, even though according to Hollywood accounting, they lost money on the Harry Potter franchise. Well, I don't care about that. I just love, I love that they brought the the books to life because it was so much to so many people. Now, how do, you, how do you feel about them sort of adapting these, like let's take Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, which as far as I can tell, wasn't necessarily a novel. It was just kind of like a book about monsters, mm-hmm. right? And yep. they, they've turned it into a movie, which... It's going to be six movies. Really? I swear that's what someone told me. Oh, jeez. Um, so, I mean, I don't mind. I thought Fantastic Beast was amazing. I think I just love the movies. Like, if I'm ever hurting for something to do or I'm, like, really not feeling well, I will just watch those movies all comfort day. comfort flick, yeah. I, I love that world. I love the fantastic world. I mean, it's obviously, like, J.K. Rowling, the writer, is what brings it all together. The, the fact that she can come up with these crazy things in her head is unbelievable to me but I don't <laughs> mind like I really liked Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find it. I thought it was really cute I thought it was really well done I thought the costumes and the sets and everything was really really beautiful so I don't have a problem with it no and neither would I necessarily it's just <clears throat> another entertaining movie this is what yeah. it is and uh, and that's what I'm going for like I I really am just looking for an entertaining movie I don't necessarily need a critically acclaimed movie it's the same reason that I don't necessarily always read Giller Prize books or Pulitzer Prize articles because mm-hmm. they don't always have what the average person is looking for. And when you say average person, you mean Kel at that particular moment? Yeah, Kel at that particular moment. I think for me, the adaptations are very, you can swing between, a good example I think is The Shining as far as going back to Stephen King again because Kubrick famously directed The Shining and at the time Stephen King hated it, absolutely hated it. And uh, you can watch this 
is really strange. I don't I don't know if I can endorse it necessarily, but the Room 237 or 231, whatever, it's a series of sort of pseudo interviews with uh, conspiracy theorists who go on about um, the the Shining and all these weird parts and some talking about, oh, this is uh, Stanley Kubrick uh, making a movie about the moon landing. Oh, no, this is Stanley Kubrick making a movie about uh, the Holocaust and all these weird ones. There's only one that's super out there, and I'm not going to get into that too much. But um, the Shining film is totally different from the novel. Uh, it's They're very close. There's some similarities, but it, it anyone who's read and seen the movie can point out the fact that they're very, very different. I think it's a good example of taking a movie or taking a, a source material and taking parts and twisting it in something that's your vision and that's a good movie. And in the in the hands of Kubrick, you end up with something that's a legend, the legend of horror that's just outstanding. I think about, I actually find myself thinking about the movie occasionally and just like how beautifully it's shot. Jack Nicholson's outrageous performance, Shelley Duvall, um, uh, Little Danny, I'm forgetting, I'm flubbing his name. It's a really good movie. Classics. I, I made a point of reading, so I'd never seen the movie, I made a few years ago. Huh. I made a point of reading the book before I watched the movie. Mm-hmm. And then I watched the movie and I loved it so much and Jack fell asleep. And here we go. Yes, I fell asleep because it's the 12th time I've seen the movie. but uh, And it is a little slow at times. Not for everyone. If you loved it that much, you would stay awake. Anyway, it's a great example of how you can adapt something and you can betray the book in a sense, but you can also make a great movie. On the other hand, you have stuff like, let's say, V for Vendetta, which is based on a graphic novel, which is even easier, even easier to adapt because all the framing, all, <laughs> all the, the storyboarding, storyboarded for you. it's all done for you. Just yeah. follow it. You don't have to do it one by one. You can do, even though it's very similar to what uh, Robert Rodriguez did for Sin City, all your work's done for you in the sense you just recreate these scenes here. You don't have to do it one for one, but it's the, the most of the hard work's done for you. But you end up with someone with V for Vendetta or even Watchmen, for example, of movies that are, they broke my heart. I walked out of V Dead a Furious. I was upset. So mostly because of Natalie Portman's terrible British accent. Oh, jeez. Why was, did she do that? I don't know. It was really bad. Yeah, just, she just is gone. Just use your US, uh, Israeli or Hebrew accent or whatever. Just go, just be normal. Don't try to fake it because you're not going to make it in this case. Um, but I walked out of V Dead a Furious that how could they screw up something? And I'm a huge View from a Data fan. The novel or the graphic novel is outstanding. Watchmen again, outstanding. I think Watchmen's slightly less bad than View from Data as far as adaptations go. But you can see why Alan Moore is just he's sick of it. You have League for Extraordinary Gentlemen, which bears little to no resemblance of the again the comic book it was based on. I don't know if you can call it a graphic novel, but certain adaptations just totally fail. And then you can go on the total other side where. The movie adaptation with Nicolas Cage, written by Charlie Kaufman, which is extraordinary, where based around Charlie Kaufman himself, who was trying to, I think he was tasked with writing or adapting a novel to the screen, and he goes meta and he writes a movie about a guy trying to write a movie or (laughs) write a movie about a book, and it's it's absolutely wild, and I endorse it. Um, So on that note, I'm going to cue up our exit music. Listen for it. Listen to that. Very nice. Very subtle transition. Mm-hmm, it was really good. Seamless, really. You would never know that I was queuing it up while I was talking about queuing it up. <laughs> no, you wouldn't. That's 40 chess. Were you even queuing it up when you said you were queuing it up? Who knows? You can't. Nobody can see it except you, Kale, and no one will believe you. Thanks, Jack. Anyway, I'm Jack. I'm Kayla. Thank you for listening to CFRU and Android's Dungeon. Stay tuned for the next program. Have a great day.